Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create your reality in a way that's true to yourself. Two items to start. First, I am thrilled that my first ever TEDx talk is out. Yay! And I look forward to your thoughts. So at TED.com, you can type my name and it should appear. It's called Speaking the Truth at Work, which I think all of you can relate to. Second, as we're into season two of the show, I want to give you a heads up on the format. Each month, we'll kick off uh, with my feature, Our Voices. And again, I started this featuring professionals from the Black community to provide a platform for listeners to gain an empathetic understanding of people whose life experiences may be very, very different than your own. I'll have a couple shows each month with people just like you calling in to talk through your tough conversations. And I'll host a special guest or two whose lives and work amplify what's really core to saying it skillfully, which is being true to yourself, helping those around you be their best selves, and playing a role in shaping a world where everyone is involved in creating a better future. With that, it is especially meaningful for me to host my guest today. My own life and many others are better for being part of his universe. The fact that he founded and manages a 19-year-old private equity firm that invests in companies, grows and sells them, for many, many, that might sound like success. To me, what's extraordinary and inspiring is how he's done so. In a space known for profit above all else, he's been true to his own passion and purpose and committed to focus on people, yes, human beings, to create value. His firm, Alpine Investors, has made investing in exceptional people their secret sauce. I've had the privilege to partner with them and observe firsthand the magic of Alpine's people-driven private equity. I am grateful and humbled to introduce my friend and Alpine Investors founder, Graham Weaver. Graham, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Hey, Molly. Uh, thanks for having me, and congrats on your uh, TED Talk. I can't wait to check it out. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. Hopefully, everyone listening will do that. So congratulations. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. It's super exciting. It is really super exciting to chat with you. It's been a bit. Um, there is super inspiring journey of the whole Alpine story, starting it in your Stanford dorm room. Before we get to all that, I would love for you to take us through your early days as a youth, the key people, yeah, well, events, you know, all the good stuff that shaped you. <laughs> you know, thanks for asking that. I haven't actually, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before in, an, in a Q&A or a panel or anything. So I'm, I, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, very Midwestern, had a, had a great upbringing, my mom gave us the greatest gift a mom could give, which is unconditional love. And she's fantastic. She now lives 10 minutes away from me and we're still really, really close. My dad was a veterinarian. His grandfather, sorry, my grandfather was a veterinarian as well. So that was supposed to be my calling. And uh, I couldn't handle the, the smells and, and then blood. So I would always end up on the floor fainting or something when I'd help my dad at work. And 
I would, uh, he would tell me that the most critical thing I could do at that moment was to clean the parking lot, uh, i.e. get some air. But as a kid, I thought, oh, gosh, that does sound pressing. <laughs> so anyway, so I, uh, I watched from, for, from him, I watched just how the value of hard work. He started his practice from scratch and, and started it doing emergency calls and just had this will to win and persistence that was, that, that was really inspiring to see as well. It wasn't all great. Uh, they got divorced when I was in high school and that was really hard. Uh, my dad subsequently years later came out of the closet as, as, as being uh, gay. And I think that was really hard for him to, to at the time to live in a town like Ohio and, and have, I can't even imagine what it was like for him to have to pretend for, for all that time. So, um, that, so it, 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 their divorce was very tough on all of us. I had a, probably two really formative experiences that I really remember that were very shaped, very much shaped, shaped me and who I was. One was I, I used to, I used to mow lawns and that was, there's a lot of grass in Ohio, as you can imagine. And, <laughs> and so <laughs> I would, I had probably five or six lawn jobs, which would consume most of my weekends and, you know, in the hot sun in the summer, just going back and forth. And I had a Sony Walkman, which was made lawn mowing bearable because it was so boring. And our library, for some reason, in Perrysburg, Ohio, had this awesome self-help collection of all the greats. Uh, probably many of you have never heard of some of these people, but Zig Ziglar and Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill, Brian Tracy, Earl Nightingale, Tony Robbins. And I, I just would devour these cassettes while I was mowing lawns and I didn't think, I don't think I realized it, but I think I was brainwashing myself going back and forth in the hot sun with these people in my head saying, set big goals and you can do it. And this is going to, this is going to work out. And, uh, and I just, I mean, hours and hours. I mean, I, I think I added up how many hours it was thousands of hours. I, I would listen to these, these people over and over. And, and the crazy thing, Molly is everything they said was just about everything they said was true. And it's, it's, it's been a lot of the, a lot of the stuff they said is actually, has actually come true. So that, that, that was a really formative experience. And the other one that I remember really well was I wrestled in high school and wrestling in Perrysburg was, it was, it was not quite, but it was almost football you know, in terms of popularity. So for me, I was just like every high school kid trying to figure out a way to fit in and wrestling was a way to feel like I was significant in some way. In my sophomore year, I made the varsity team and I got to wear all the gear around and I felt really important. And then after this tournament uh, in sort of the, fall, the winter of my sophomore year, a guy who was a weight class above me, who was our captain, who was amazing, he dropped down a weight to my weight class and I wasn't I wasn't able to beat him, so I was going to lose my starting position. I, and this was at 145 pounds. Ooh. And then the only other position where I could beat the guy, and there was an opening, was at 125. So I had to lose 20 pounds, and I was nearly as tall as I am now. I'm not 6'1 now, and I was probably 5'11 or so at the time. So I had to eat 
800 calories a day for, or 900 or a thousand a day for, for the, the whole year and then work out twice a day. And, and that was, that was a really crazy experience because I just, I just kind of tapped into this willpower that I didn't know existed. And I think a lot of us have that where you have some experience and you're like, Whoa, I didn't know I could do that. And then I, I've used that over and over. That was probably to, even to the day, the hardest thing I ever did. And um, so I've been able to tap into that too. So those were a couple, a couple formative, a couple formative experiences from growing up. So wait a second, 145, one, you lost how you were 120. No, you got to 145. No, I, I, I started you, at 145 and I you, dropped to 125 and I was 5'11 at the time. I don't, I'm just so like, I can't, I, sorry, I was, I'm shocked. <laughs> I was skin and bones. I mean, I, I was, and I was working out twice a day. I was miserable. I was, I was anorexic. I was, it was, it was, uh, it was very, very hard. And, uh, but what was crazy, Molly, is it translated to my grades. I started getting really good grades because I took that discipline to that. And I just, I don't know, I tapped into something. I, I wouldn't recommend it. It was horrible, but I also just found another gear, I guess. Wow, you're. I mean, now I'm really, I'm really in awe because I'm. I love food. I can't imagine. So, were you just were you just hungry for a year? Yeah, I would sit in class and just make lists of what I was going to eat at lunch, and then what I was going to eat at dinner, and I would add up all the calories. I did that over and over. I would do that. Yeah, I was hungry for a year. Well, actually, you know what was crazy was even when I didn't have to lose the weight when the season was over, I couldn't just go back to eating normally. It didn't happen that way. I stayed pretty light. I didn't, I wasn't quite 125, but I was probably 130, low, low 130s. And it just didn't, I didn't really shake that actually until college. So I definitely developed the eating, eating disorder during that time. But, but yes, I was, so I was basically hungry for three years. <laughs> oh my God. So wait a second. So your mom loves you. And so is she like, okay, grandma, honey, it's okay. Or is she thinking like, come on, you got to stop doing this. I'm serious. Like, was that, was everyone fought, like, okay, you can do it. We fought every day. We fought, she, to, you know, to her credit, we fought about it every day. And she, I mean, to, to, she, she hated it. She hated wrestling. She, I mean, so she, <laughs> yeah, she wasn't a fan at all to her, to her, much to her credit. She saw what was, who knows, maybe I'm, I'm six one now, maybe I'd be six four if I hadn't, uh, <laughs> if I hadn't done that. <laughs> now, do you talk a bit about the sibling dynamics? You, did you have siblings? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have a older sister and a younger brother and we were, we were all pretty close. My sister was three years older and, and we weren't necessarily into the same thing. So we weren't, we were close and got, we still to this day get along really well. My brother and I were 18 months apart and we liked all the same things. So we, we, we did it, kind of did everything together. That's sweet. That's great. Okay, I, have two, I have two boys. I have two boys now who are close in age and they're, they're best friends. And it's so cool to see they're I mean, they're best friends and it's just, there's a lot of ways sibling dynamics can go, but as a parent, that's been, that's been really cool to see them. They go, they're they're just there, literally. The clothes they're so so tight. It's really nice to see my brother and I were as well. That's so fabulous. You also have a little princess. Yeah, I have a twelve year old girl too. Who who <laughs> basically, I have a sixteen year old 
a boy, a 14-year-old boy, and a 12-year-old girl. And my 12-year-old girl basically thinks she's a 16-year-old boy in terms of her, what she's into and how she <laughs> carries herself. Because she doesn't know any difference. So she, she just, she plays, she plays up with, with her brothers. Well, I love it. And I hope you don't mind. I say the princess is a very fun, positive thing because the photo I have, I saw of her on your site when she was super little. She was really yeah, darling. Yeah, yeah. So that was really stuck with me. And I didn't realize she's 12. So that's awesome. Um, okay, that's outstanding. And I, I, you know, I'm just seeing you on that lawnmower, pushing, sweating, listening. And I'm just, I'm just really, <laughs> now I'm never going to be able to look at you the same way. Um, Graham, what talk about school and the discipline with grades, and were you destined to go on to, you know, you know, great academics? What was that whole academic thing for you when you were? Yeah, in- it was. It, it, you know, I, I was, an average. I was above average student, not not the best, but above average again until until I switched that gear with the wrestling. At that point, for the rest of my high school, I never got an A minus. Even I got straight A's because I did a little damage my, my freshman year before I turned into that turned that gear. I graduated second, not first, but from sophomore through senior year, I never got anything lower than an A in any class. And then I went to Princeton and decided I was going to be valedictorian at Princeton since I missed out in high school. I was going to be valedictorian at Princeton, which did not happen. But I was I definitely did very well there. I I, I don't, they don't have class rankings and things, but based on awards that I got and um, who, different things, I, I was, I, I got an award for the varsity athlete with the highest academic standing and I got a, the civil engineering prize and, and a Phi Beta Kappa and highest honor. So I, I'm, I think I graduated in the top, I don't know, you know, very, very top, top 20, 20 students or something. I, I don't know. They don't, they don't. I issue it, but I, but I worked, I worked super hard. I mean, I, I had a job at the library and I, I, uh, I thought, I thought it was the greatest job ever because I got paid to basically sit there and study and, and I couldn't understand why no one wanted the shifts on Friday and Saturday night. So they paid one and a half times for those. And I was like, awesome. So I basically, my first two years, I didn't really go out. I just studied. I was an engineer and I, I didn't, I, ha- I didn't have our school in high school didn't have much in the way of engineering or calculus or physics or things like that. So I started off very far behind a lot of the other students, which in hindsight turned out to be a blessing because I established really intense study habits early that stayed with me. So I, I, I threw myself into academics in college quite a bit. And I also threw myself into rowing. I rowed crew and, um, that 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 actually was even more time than studying. I spent, uh, you know, in addition to whatever practice we had, I probably five days a week did an additional practice on my own in some form, whether <laughs> I had a bunch of different things I did, which we can get into if you're interested. But I had, I definitely always, I did, I did whatever we had. And then I, and I tried to add like an hour most days to whatever, whatever the, whatever our practice was. Graham, the intensity 
there isn't a there isn't a big enough capital I for that word. So the the <laughs> the, the over the topness it's just extraordinary. So so this is really fascinating. Okay, Molly, I'll, let me tell you just a, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories, okay, <laughs> just to make it come alive. Okay, so I'll tell you. Here's one. One one was um, I've got I've got a bunch of them, but one of them was we used to run stadium stairs and. You'd basically like imagine there's a stadium and you'd run up one and then you move over to the next section and run down and you move over to the next section and run up. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's just say to do an entire stadium, you'd run up and down 30 times or something like that. Well, my own, that, that, that would be a practice that we had in rowing. That would be like our practice, you know, in the off season when we weren't, you know, just to kind of mix it up. Well, on, we would do that. I'd go home. You know, everyone would go home. We did that, say, Saturday morning. I'd go back in the afternoon and do two more, like, nonstop, just two more stadiums as hard, you know, as hard as I could. And, and I did that. I did, two, you know, I would do double stadiums three times a week, just, like, as my own thing. I, I, just, I just loved it. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> Most people. And then, and then the other thing is, you know, the, the rowing machine itself it's kind of a medieval torture device because you're, you're rowing and you're getting feedback, you know, so if you're rowing like a 2k as hard as you can, you're rowing about call it round numbers. You're rowing 30 strokes a minute plus or minus. So in other words, you're taking a stroke every two seconds and you're getting feedback every stroke. So every two seconds, there's a number that flashes up on the screen that tells you how fast you're going. And then you have to make a decision. Like, let's say that I'm, I'm trying to, we're doing a 2k and I'm trying to, I'm trying to go, you know, call it six minutes and 15 seconds. So I have to hold one minute and 33 second splits. Okay. So every, every time I pull, I'm seeing 133, 133, 133. Well, then all of a sudden I start to see 134, 135, 134, 135. And I know my time is flipping because I'm seeing these splits. So I have to make a decision. Do I pull a little harder now and make it go down? My splits get better. Or do I just kind of let it go and maybe I'll catch up at the end? Or maybe, hey, I'm not going to make that time. And you're making, but you're making that decision every two seconds. So it's, it's, it's intense. It's really crazy. So I, I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I just, I got obsessed. Uh, with with the rowing machine, and I, I uh, my my freshman year, I was I, I I spent I spent so much time on the rowing machine, Molly. It's 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 hard to even hard to even describe. But I uh, I yeah I, I love it maybe even more than rowing itself. <laughs> you this is so eye opening. So I so I'm going to come back to this in a second, but this. Missed out on the high school valedictorian. That, that just, you know, is it the competitive? Like, what is it about it to be that top dog? Like, what is it for you? I think, well, you know, I think, I think it was just when, like, with, I'll start, I'll go back to, like, the, the, the 125 weight thing. I just couldn't believe I actually could do it. I was like, oh, my God. Like, I set this goal. I, I, I thought I was going to. And I'm actually doing it. I, I mean, and, and then, you know, and then I, when I would row, when I rode crew, 
I started off, I was the worst guy on the team I'd never rode before. And I remember we did our first earth test and I just sucked. And then little by little, I was just like, whoa, wait a second. If I, you know, if I work out, you know, if I add another practice to our normal practice, I can actually change and I can, I can start to, and then by my sophomore year, I'll never forget that I was rowing next to uh, a guy who was not the captain, but he was one of the top guys. And I was rowing next to him my sophomore year. And we were just doing a random practice, but it was not random. We were both looking at each other's screens. <laughs> and, we were, and I remember just crushing this guy who was a senior. And, he, and I was this lowly sophomore who hadn't even made the boat yet. But I was just, I just remember thinking, wait a second, how did, did I really just do that? Like, and so I think there's something, I mean, at the time, I can't go back and think about it at the time, but today, what I'd say is it's just you don't really get the chance to be, be the best at something very often in your life. You get, you get a, you know, most people never get that chance. And I've had that chance a bunch of times to really be the best at something. And I just, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's really exciting who you have to become to do that. And you, you know, you, 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 you just, you just light up and you have to, you have to like grow and you have to stretch and you have to, become someone different than, or someone you have to, you have to add to your skills or, and I just, for me personally, maybe going back to mowing lawns, I just love getting better. I just like, I like getting better at things. I like, I like setting goals and moving toward them. I'll say one thing also, I'm, I know I'm babbling a little bit, but I'll, I'll say one thing about the setting goals thing, which is the achieving of the goals piece has been one of the biggest letdowns for me. The most surprising thing I found was actually hitting those goals were some of the worst periods of my life. Like when we sold one of our first companies, I think it was around 2014, that actually gave me some liquidity where I could exhale. And I'd been working at Alpine for, at this point, 14 years. And I, for the first time in my life, I kind of exhaled and I knew my, I could pay my mortgage. <laughs> I knew my kids were going to college. And when that happened... I went through this period of like, sure, elation for like a couple of days and then depression because I just was like, is this all like, is this, is this what, is this what I've been working for for 14 years? Like I thought it was supposed to feel better than this. And like all my problems are still here, you know, like I'm, I'm still, I, I still have, you know, I st I, like my life didn't all of a sudden everything didn't change. And like, you know, it's not this happy place now. It's, it's, I still have the same stuff. And so I, I didn't, what I've realized now subsequently is I just like the journey. I just like the, the battle. I like the, I just like being in it and trying to, trying to get better. I love, I love it. I love it. So Graham, when there are folks who forget they're they're not even trying to be number one, but they don't have quite the aspiration or the, you know, the, the thrill of the, of the fight. Can you work with them? How does it go? You know, I, I haven't found that person, you know, I, I, I haven't found someone who doesn't have something in their life that they're not fired up about. Or, or I just use like three, three negatives. <laughs> I'll say it's positive. I, I, everyone I've worked with has something that they're fired up about. And sometimes that's not Alpine or that's not whatever, you know, it's, it's not the company that, that they're working for. But that doesn't mean that that person doesn't possess that. Um, and so 
I actually, I haven't, I haven't had someone say, oh, you know, I just, I just want to be average. And, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm just fortunate the kinds of people I've been surrounding myself with, but, but I, I haven't come across, I have had people who show up that way. They show up as not caring or not wanting to get better. And, and then there, there could be something going on with them, or maybe they, maybe the, the thing that they're doing isn't just going to, it just isn't going to get them there. Or a lot of times there's something else going on. Like <clears throat> they have just some fears and doubts and limiting beliefs that, that you got to like kind of get to. But, uh, but I haven't, I don't, I don't think there's people out there who don't have energy or passion or anything like that. That's great. That's right. You've done a lot of things that are not, you know, not maybe the most normal. So do you have moments when you felt like you really, you didn't fit in and was it a struggle or you're just like, this is what I got to do? Because this whole notion of true north is just, it's not really a struggle for you. You just, you just go there. I get that. Um, but I'm just wondering if you ever felt, you know, kind of like really odd man out at where it was really a struggle for you. Oh, I feel like that all the time. I mean, I, I mean, oh, I, so when I, when I was in high school, imagine I'm in a, this town, it's a small blue collar town in the kind of rust belt. And, you know, the, the, the cool things to do as a kid are sports for sure, which I tried to fit in there as we talked about earlier and drinking a lot. And that, you know, that was really cool. And, and not, drugs weren't a huge part, but definitely, definitely alcohol was. And and actually kind of not caring about school and not doing well. I, I remember in the football locker room, people would post up an exam where they got an F and thought that was really cool and stuff. And, and I, I just, I mean, I think a lot of people feel like they don't fit in in high school. I definitely just didn't fit, fit in. I just felt like I was, I was pretending the whole time. And, you know, we go, we go, even when I, when I was in like a party or something and, people would be talking about something and laughing about it, about making fun of someone or doing this. And I just remember saying like, kind of, I would, I would, I would think like, am I supposed to laugh? Is that supposed to be funny? Like I, I just, so I, I definitely didn't, <laughs> I definitely didn't fit in. I didn't fit in in college. I didn't feel like I fit in there. And um, I, yeah, so I, I always felt, I always felt like a little bit of a square peg in a round hole. So, so take us to the Alpine where you created your own pegs of the, of the shape that you could put yourself into, because this is a really <laughs> fascinating journey. Well, yeah. So going back to, you know, I, I go to business school. Well, I, first I go to wall street and wall street was, uh, man, it, it was a, it was just a cliche of wall street. It was exactly <laughs> like you'd see in the movies. I mean, it was, people working a hundred hours and, you know, just being obnoxious to each other and just horrible culture. And, and the, but the worst part about it, I mean, all that stuff, you put that aside, like the actual worst part is I didn't learn anything. You know, I, I basically built financial models for, I learned two months of content in two years and I spent every night and weekend doing that. So it was just, it was just kind of a waste of time and it was a waste of my talent. I just remember thinking, is this really what this company wants from me. Like this is, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm ready to go take over the world, run through walls. Like I'm, I, and, and you, you want me to sit in this corner and build this financial model. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> like you're, you're using like one and a half percent of my talent. Um, if that, 
so I so I go to I'll, I'll fast forward just that that's really when I started Alpine that was the that was really the why Molly that was the why the why was there's these incredible people that are graduating and they they can do anything they are they are just full of energy and talent and passion and motivation and they they just they can they can do anything and and they and that was me that was and that's a lot of the, the people that we hire that's all the people we hired out at alpine and they can do anything so let's let's go have them do it let's do, let's do it you know let's let's put them in a roles where they can they can actually do that in fact let's put them in roles way beyond what they can do and let's have them you know run companies in their 20s and let's have them uh go to management meetings and 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 close deals you know 2 years in I mean, they go to management meetings two days in, but I mean, be the be a lead on closing deals two years in, and let's let's have them sit on boards and just do stuff that you know that would have taken me ten years to do, at, you know, on Wall Street, and we're giving people that, be, be, and not not, and it's because they they can do it, you know, they're they have those skills and capabilities. So that was my why. My why was like, I want to start a firm that I wanted to work at, or I or that that I where I could have actually showed off showed up, but I could, I could use some of my real potential. That, that, that was, that's my why of Alpine is I, is just my experience about how this industry could be. And so anyway, so I, I go to business school and I, I was sat in this, I still remember I sat in this core class and I went to Stanford and I teach at Stanford and I love Stanford. I, I'm the biggest Stanford fan ever, but (laughs) <laughs> the first year core, the first year core class that I sat in was 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 not good, and and they've they've improved the core quite a bit since then, but it was it was not good. And this twenty five year old, uh, I think PhD student who'd never worked a day in his life was teaching my strategy class. I just remember he didn't know what he was doing. I didn't. Yeah, you know, no one wanted, He didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there. <laughs> like it was just was horrible. So I started. So anyway, I. I I decided I was going to start to try to buy a company and uh, I didn't have any money. I didn't, but I, I kind of thought I knew how to do it because I worked at a, at a firm, not, not the first firm on wall street, but the second one I worked at where, where I I had a little bit more exposure to, to deal. So I, so anyway, I, I can get into as much or a little detail, but I ended up, ended up buying this tiny little label printing company in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, with all pretty much all debt we had seller debt seller had debt we had bank debt we had equipment loans and we had sbic debt which uh and then and then and then my amount i had to put in i borrowed too that was the time when you could you could write yourself a check and you would get these credit card applications and they'd say write yourself a check for thirty thousand dollars and don't pay interest for 12 months i'd be like okay <laughs> so I did that, <laughs> and then and then I uh, then you would get another one that would say, "Roll over your balance and don't pay interest for twelve months." I'd say, "Okay," and uh, so I had this elaborate spreadsheet of these credit cards and when the loans are coming due, and it not again not not recommended. Not, it was dumb, but but it was just sort of the, that was I didn't have any any money. I, was, I had debt from business school, and I still had some from college. So anyway, so that 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 was that was the. That was the beginning of Alpine. 
<laughs> oh my god it's just it's just too fabulous for words um okay let me just as one thing because you know people first and i i really brag about how i first met the firm i said really what private equity firm has putting people first on the website i mean come on right and so what's it mean to you putting people first so first off I think now lots of people put it on their website or not lots, but there's, there are, you know, and, and I think it's kind of the, it's kind of the cool thing to say now. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Whatever. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's and a then, lot of writing. Yeah. And then, but like, like if, sorry, I'm going to, I got, I got to tell a story because it's just, it's just easier to explain myself in a story than in, in like using platitudes. Perfect. Okay. So, <laughs> so in 2009, I hired, I, I hired my first ever executive coach, uh, JP Flom, who's phenomenal. And you might know Amali and he's, uh, yeah. he's one of my, become one of my closest friends. Anyway, first coach I ever had. So we, we would have a coach, we would have a call like, you know, every week at 8am and, 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 and I would, so I, one, one, one time I pinged him. I'm like, Hey, I can't make our call, you know? And, and, and it was on, you know, we had a, we had a pretty strict rule that you don't miss this call. So he said, Hey, we're doing the call 10 minutes, you know, even if I know you have a lot of stuff. And so this was now 2009, the world's falling apart. Our, our Alpine's falling apart. I mean, I'm draining my bank account literally to make payroll and it's a, you know, it's a mess. Uh, the world's a mess. You know, we've got seven companies in default. We weren't raising our next fund anytime soon. It was it was a low point. <laughs> you know? no. I could go on and on, but it was it was stressful. And so the so we have this call and I, and he says, okay, what's stressing you out? I say, oh man, I got to fly to Dallas and I gotta I gotta fix this thing, and then from there I gotta go to Chicago and I gotta the deal's falling apart, and I gotta go to DC and this thing. He said, okay, slow down. You know, let's talk about Dallas. Uh, what what's going on? And sorry, well, we missed our numbers. Well, yeah, but you know, but okay. So what, you know, but this is the second time we missed our numbers. Well, why'd that happen? And we kind of go through and he says, you know, sort of why, why, why kind of getting it. I later learned this is kind of a coaching thing of your root cause, finding your root cause. <laughs> and he says, he says, well, why did the CEO send in numbers and miss them again? And, and he said, and I said, Oh, you know, it's, it's the recession, you know, it's, it's, you know, and he said, Oh, so you have an A plus CEO there. I said, well, no, I didn't say that, you know. Well, how would you rate him? A, B, C. I said, C plus, B minus. He said, and then we, anyway, so then we go to, we go to Chicago, same thing. It was, it was someone on our team had screwed something up. So I was doing a diving save there. And then same was true at DC. So my, you know, I'm running around extinguishing flames, but I'm not putting out the fire. You know, like that was kind of his, he's like, look, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to build, you know, he said, Graham, you told me when we started, you wanted to build the best private equity firm in, you know, in your generation. And, and can you do, are you going to do that with backing C plus CEOs? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> so I said, no. Um, okay. So then what are we going to do about, it? you know? Oh, well, you know, give him another chance. Come on. Is he going to turn it around? No. Okay. So what are you going to do about it? So, so anyway, Here's, here, here's the, I'm, I, the, here's the summary is we put in Mark Strauch, who I know you know really well. Yes. Uh, so Mark Strauch became the CEO of this same company that had this other person. The other person had been in the industry for 25 years, 
was like a celebrity in the ATM business. There is, I, I don't know, that, that's an oxymoron right there. <laughs> in the ATM business, but, but, but in, in terms of that industry, he was like, he was the guy. So we, we moved him out. We put Mark Strauch, who, who's never, didn't know anything about ATMs, uh, and who did, you know, kind of didn't really want to know anything about it. I mean, he wasn't like, but, but he was just an, inc- as you know, Mal, you know him really well. He's an incredible human being and leader and, just, just, just a kind of person you you want. He's now, he's now for for those who don't know, he's now my partner of uh, what uh, ten, twelve years, um, and just one of my one of my best friends. So we put Mark Strauk in. Okay, so fast forward, Mark Strauk, same industry. Industry doesn't change. In fact, it gets worse because it's a recession. Same company, and we go from losing all our money, which was where we were headed, to the deal returning. 70% of the entire fund in that deal and nothing changed except the leader. And the leader, by the way, was a high attribute leader and who shares our values and is just a high attribute person with no experience in the industry. That was, so that Molly is what I mean by people first. I mean, we're going to solve for the individual. We're going to get the most incredible human beings we can and that's our strategy. And then we're going to buy with them. We're going to buy recurring. We, so people first is a double entendre. It also means people come first. So sequentially in our investment process, we start with the Mark Strauch. We hire him first. We don't even know what we're going to buy. We buy software and services companies. So we might hire Mark Strauch to do a software business, but we don't have a business in mind. But we just know we love Mark Strauch. And then we go find a company. So that, that so so sequentially, people come first, and then people first, meaning that's what makes us money. You know, we buy recurring revenue businesses, so we give that person a great business from which to operate. You have to have they have to have a good foundation. So they wake up on January first of twenty twenty one, and they know ninety to one hundred and ten percent of their revenue because it's a recurring revenue business. And then from there, they can win based on. Count, you know, they can hire well, they can build teams, they can, you know, crank up sales and marketing, they can do, uh, you know, take care of the customers better, they can, they can do all those kind of classic things. And because so we're delivering a stable platform of a recurring revenue business, but at the end, all of our returns are coming from, you know, the Mark Strauch in this example. Spectacular. People are listening. They're thinking, we want to work for that guy. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, okay, no, let's transition. Try to go, they're probably going to go try hire Mark Strauss. So, so I'm not sure that was favorable for us, but, um, but that's all right. He built it in. Okay, let us. Um, okay, let me do a segue. So, well, before we get to the Say It Skillfully Challenge, because I know you've prepared a question for me, I do want to bring up the topic because in this world today, right, we're really about embracing all the differences at work, right? This whole diversity, the equity, inclusion, and a lot of conversations going on within. I know you guys are very open-hearted about it. And so I'm, I would love to hear about, you know, how have the conversations gone in the firm? Um, what, you know, has it been comfortable for you navigating the topic? I'd just love to get your, you know, kind of gut reaction yeah. on that. Not an easy. Well, the first first thing I'll, I'll just say, like we are ideally, I think one thing we realize is we are ideally 
position to actually make a real difference in, in diversity and, in, in, and inclusion. And, and like, I, I won't spend a ton of time on this, but, I'm, but go back to the example I used of the company where, where Mark didn't have any industry experience. Well, th- that's actually also true for who we hire at Alpine. We hire people with no finance and accounting experience because we value attributes over experience in our leaders. We value attributes over experience. So if that's true, then we don't have to be a prisoner to things that happened 20 years ago. So, for example, a lot of companies, hey, you're going to hire a CEO of a technology company, great. You hire someone with 20 years of experience and blah, 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 blah. Well, that battle was already lost 20 years ago. So whether there's, you know, people of color or, or women, you know, and there's too few of them in, in leadership roles, you know, that was a battle that was waged 20 years ago. But in our model, you know, we, 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 can, we can win that battle now. We can hire people right now who have no experience. So we have an entire you know, we have, we have, we, we can, and we do bring a very diverse group. And we've been doing that for, you know, for seven, eight years in our CEO and training program and in, and in Alpine uh, HQ. So we've, we have a great platform to, to really make a, a big difference in terms of your question on the discomfort in the conversations. I think that's exactly the way I'd say it is um, initially they were, you know, I think, I think there were a lot of people would just kind of tap dance around and not really sure how to talk about race, um, how to, how to talk about some of the, the racism and in, in the U S and I think I was one of those people. I probably still am, you know, where it's, it still is uncomfortable. And I think what we've, 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 uh, gone, we've been going through training at Alpine and, and just making space to have those conversations. We have a, we have a weekly book club where we're going through um, some of the books like white fragility and how to be an anti-racist. And we're, and we're, we're at least just talking about it. And, and, and then on top of that, we are, we are, we are taking action in terms of trying to help improve diversity at Alpine. And, um, and we think we're in a really unique position to do that. That's awesome. For the other leaders out there, Graham, what have you done you know, explicitly to just signal to folks, because it's often, you know, it's harder for people often to like say exactly what they want to say to the leaders. This is not a newsflash for anyone. Um, anything that comes to mind that you've done explicitly to help kind of encourage um, people to share what they, they might think you don't want to hear? I think, um, I think showing up to these things, you know, showing up to the book club and, and being uncomfortable and saying, Hey, here's, here's how I thought about this. Like I didn't realize, for example, all the, you know, I, you just heard, I just gave you the whole story about, you know, my background and stuff. And up until recently, I didn't realize that, that, yeah, I was able to do all those things about rowing and academics and all that because I had such a huge head start being a Caucasian male and an upper middle class background. And, you know, I, you know, I, I was given a massive head start in the race. And I think just, just kind of talking about that and, and having me just be out there and, and not, not just me, but my other partners really be on the front lines and, and being willing to just, to just make space and talk about it, I think is, I think is probably how, how we've done it. I, I don't, I don't know that we've done everything right either. Um, but we're, we're trying, you know, we're, we have, we're having training folks come in, we're showing up for those, we're having breakout groups and, and just, just making space to talk about it is probably, probably would be my, 
my advice, I guess. That's great. I appreciate it. It's not a recipe, folks. It is about being real. And I, and I, um, I thank you for just sharing that, Graham, because I know that sometimes people are looking for the answers. And I think part of the answer is we have to create the answers. Um, okay, so let's segue so we can role model for listeners. Some, um, imagine there's a challenging kind of conversation or sensitive situation um, you've had or had, um, and we might, can talk that through. Well, I, I, have, I have two that I've thought of. Uh, one, one that's, and I, 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 I still even come in two minutes before the call, wasn't sure which one. So I'll say both. And then maybe you could guide me which one you think would be better for, for your, your listeners. So okay. one is pretty, pretty personal. And so, whereas I, I went into business with a, with a person who became a, a good friend and I've just been really kind of disappointed in how he's handled some things. And the, the reason I, I don't, the reason I hesitate on bringing this one is because I, I, I'd want to keep it really vague um, just because I care a lot about this person. So that's, that's kind of one. And the other one, which I thought, which is the one I was leaning toward is that, well, well so in the, in the first one, I just, I just, I struggle going in and out of being his friend, which I am. And I care way more about that than the business part and feeling a little bit not treated that great on the business side. So that's, that's what the hard thing is on the first one. On the second one, the second one I struggle a lot with, and this is probably the one I think I want to talk about Molly, which is, um, I teach at Stanford. I meet with students. I probably meet, I don't know, 40, 30, 40 students a year for coffee or walks or whatever. And I have, I, I, I feel like I'm not getting through them. Like I have the same conversation probably 70% of the time, which is students say some version of, I'm really passionate about X and this is what I want to do with my life. Or, or I don't, I don't know exactly what I want to do. I kind of want to do some version of this. You know, I, I know I want to do a nonprofit or I know I want to be a leader or I know I want to be an entrepreneur or something like that. So they have, they have a vague notion and they, and, and, and I, I meet with mo- a lot of students who want to be an entrepreneur, something entrepreneurial because that's because they self-select because the classes I teach are entrepreneurship classes. So I have more of those students in my class that I meet with. And then, then they don't do it. Right. So then they, then they say, okay, well, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go take this job in investing, or I'm going to go be a consultant or I'm going to do whatever. And it's, and it's nothing, nothing like what they say they want to do. Okay. And then they say, but that's only for like a couple years. And then they're, but they never leave, you know, cause it's a really good life. So Molly, my question for you is like, how do I get through them? And do I, do I, are they, you know, what, what I, my internal struggle is like, are they really doing the wrong thing? Or maybe that is the right thing for them. But what I'm trying to communicate to them that's not getting through is like, for me personally, having chosen, I, I, I also went, you know, I also had a, the job that paid really well that uh, that I wasn't that excited about. And I like, now you can hear on this call, I'm just so alive and I'm like the best version of myself and I get to do what I love every day. Like I'm, I'm trying to bring that to them and they're not doing it and I'm just not getting through to them. You know, I'm just not, 
and maybe that's not my cross to bear. I don't know. So that yeah, would be I've, yeah. maybe that's the one to talk about. Yeah, let's talk this through. I think this is this is a great one, and I'm very I get it too because I was in a big corporate thing for a while. Um, I am living the dream. I say to people, I'm one of the happier people you know on the planet. So I get it. And, and I want that for everyone. I'm like, I want everyone to feel so fulfilled and love it. Game on every day. And yeah, that's I think, exactly right. Yeah. That's where I come from. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. Like my head's nodding big time. So I, I'd, say, I'd say two things. One is to be in good relationship with yourself, which is, look at you're here to help people help themselves and you can put it out there um, but just be clear it's not it's not a negative or positive for you it's like gram's gram and so to be able to be clear now if it's really bothering you it's like is it bothering me because i'm failing like i feel bad about gram or and and i'm not advocating one way or the other but i think for it's always starts within so what is it that's edgy for oneself like i'm letting down i must be not good enough well wait a second is that really like where are you getting that statement? Because I I think that as as a friend, as a coach, as a mentor, helping someone see what's going on for them is is like eighty percent of it. And and w- what they see is what they see, and who they are is who they are. And that's not for us to make judgments or to change necessarily. So yeah. Right. So a lot of people, they're saying it because, well, I'm in an entrepreneurial course because this is the most popular course. So I was supposed to take Graham's course. Therefore, I'm supposed to then start a company. And we all know, we all know this Mm -hmm. is not for everyone. (laughs) Okay. This this life is to be super successful and thrive in an entrepreneurial environment. This is not for everyone, people. Absolutely entrepreneurial qualities are, are great assets all the way around. But to truly jump in. And to do what you did, I mean, credit card spreadsheet. I mean, come on, this is not for for yeah. for a lot. You know what? You're right. You're totally right. That's a really good framing. Um, I think I think you're right. I think um, I think that sometimes maybe what's happening that I'm not paying attention to is they're telling me what they think I want to hear, maybe in terms of what their real aspiration is or something. Uh-huh. But so there, I think there's an element of that. I think the, the other one that I'll just push on and stay with it a little bit, Molly, is I feel like they end up like what I, what I, I, I 1000% agree entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. And, and it's for a lot of reasons, not, I mean, for, for many, many reasons, it just might not even be the, the most fulfilling thing for a lot of people. And, in the early days, it's really not that cerebral, <laughs> you know. It's pretty, it's pretty. Uh, it, it, it's really? a lot of a lot of stuff you don't really probably want to be doing. But, but the but what I'm, what I what I, I guess want to be careful of, or what I what I really am worried about is just trying to give them tools to not make a decision from fear and doubt, and and maybe they just have to overcome that themselves and maybe they have to gain confidence themselves before they can get through the fear and the doubt, because that's, that's really what, that's really where they're often where they're coming from. You know, when, when they're making their decisions, it's, it's, it's from that place. That's right. And, and so I, the, I just, you, I just, go ahead. You can hear like JP, this is where you're like, okay, so what are you afraid of? 
period. Yeah. And and helping someone because that's a normal thing. We have we all have fears and we can't work with them or understand them if we actually don't articulate them. So sometimes people do know what their fears are, but sometimes they don't. And so just the process mm-hmm. of helping someone think through that is is huge. So that's your students are very lucky. And I, I have to tell that. you, we have yeah, we have gone on and on. So I have the one closing question for you, and that is well, well, I just want to I just want to put like I think just to, to to put a framework around that, just putting it on the table and going right at it. I think is such a good answer that you're giving me. And by the way, that's probably the answer for almost every conversation <laughs> is just what's not being said and like, just put it right on the table. So I didn't recognize that in this one and that's great advice. So thanks for that, Molly. Oh, my, it's my pleasure. I'm here for you. So listen, we have to wrap and this has been such, it's been joyous for me. Graham, you've shared a lot and I, and I just want to ask you, what was it like for you to share all this inside scoop about G Weaver. It's really energizing. It's really fun. I, I I'm just uh, I'm just grateful to be asked, honestly. <laughs> so it's really fun for me. You can probably hear in my voice. It's super an energizing conversation, and I I really appreciate you doing this. And I've been on God knows how many panels or fireside chats and things, and the questions you ask are just super interesting for for me and and energizing and they're also like they actually just signal that you you're interested in me as a person which was really fun to really fun to go through those those questions so i really appreciate it i appreciate you more than you could possibly know i am here for you graham anything i can do to be of help um please reach out and uh, i thank you for being part of the solution hopefully we'll cross uh, our paths will cross live before long you take good care Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. So I will um, hop to my thought for the week, which I think is a play on the private equity, and it's from Thoreau. And the thought for the week is, let your capital be simplicity and contentment. Let your capital be simplicity and contentment. And that is a wrap. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved.
Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 